Uh, great to be here today. Uh, and today we come to the end of our journey through Peter's first letter. It's been good, hasn't it? Has anyone been here for the whole series, like every single week, do you reckon? Anyone? Yeah, couple. Good on you. Yeah, it's been great. I mean, of course, a lot of it was on podcasts. Uh, but it's been so uh, encouraging, at times really challenging as well. And as Peter finishes his letter, his heart's desire is that these believers and we along with them be strong, firm and steadfast as we stand in the grace of God. And then for this to happen, in this passage, he outlines four things that we need to do and one thing that God does. And then we get those few verses at the end. And uh, I'm going to throw in a few extra observations there. Some fantastic little bits of encouragement there as well. Uh, if you've got a Bible in front of you uh, at home or, or here, keep it open because we'll be following through the passage. Uh, there is, if you're watching the live stream, an activity sheet for the kids. That's what it looks like, parents. Um, so I'm looking forward to seeing some of them completed and posted on the Facebook page at the end. Uh, but let's just ask God for his help as we come to his word now. Let's pray. Dear Father, your word is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts. So, Father, please help us to listen carefully to your word, ready to obey for your glory for the good of your people and for the growth of your kingdom. Amen. Well, in verses 6 to 9, uh, overlapping a little bit with last week, we've been instructed to do four things. Verse 6, humble yourselves. We uh, explored that one last week. Verse 7, cast all your anxiety on him. Verse 8, be alert and sober-minded. Verse 9, resist the devil. These four things are going to help us to be strong, firm and steadfast as we stand in the grace of God. So let's take a closer look at these. The original readers, as we've heard, were caught in pretty serious persecution. So the command then to cast all your anxiety on God makes every bit of sense. And it's the way godly humility is expressed when life is tough. That's why it follows from verse 6. And the motivation here is because God cares for you. Isn't that beautiful? Friends, the Bible clearly teaches us that God actively cares for his children. And this is a wonderful, comforting truth. And to my knowledge, no other religion teaches such a thing, that God actively cares for his children. We're not bothering God. We're certainly not making him angry by casting our cares on him, nor are we wasting our time with a God who's just bored, deaf or indifferent. God loves us. God cares for us and he is able to help. So let us cast our cares on him, our anxiety on him. And when you hear that word cast, I want you to think, Footy, not fishing. All right, because when we pray about things, we're supposed to pass them to God and let him run with it. 
Right. But so often we, we cast them, don't we, only to wind them back in and then worry about them, dwell on them again, get all anxious and worked up and then remember God. Oh, that's right. And so then we cast them back on God in prayer and then we wind them back in. Yeah, it doesn't matter if it's a big issue or a little issue. Yeah, notice that little word all, all your anxiety. That's such a challenge, isn't it? We wind in our big worries. We wind in our little ones. Uh, but what's happening is as we do that, they erode the joy and peace God wants us to enjoy in Christ. The Greek word for anxiety means to be drawn in different directions. Our mind goes back and forth over things. Anxiety has a debilitating effect on our lives. And it springs from a loss of confidence or, or, or losing that sense of control. Now, when you think about it, it's perfectly normal human response in many situations because we aren't in control. So many things in life are simply beyond our control. So anxiety rises. And that's precisely why God wants us to cast our anxiety on him. And trust him because he cares for our needs and he is in control. Continual anxiety is often an indication of a lack of faith. We know God's there, but we don't really trust that he's either capable or perhaps willing to do anything about it. It brings to mind Jesus' words about worry in Matthew 6. These will be familiar, I'm sure. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. And then he goes on and uses birds and flowers as examples of the way God feeds and clothes creatures. And he makes the point, are you not much more valuable than they? And then as he wraps up, as he brings that little uh, section to a conclusion, Jesus says this. Uh, the, the, the bottom line is, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. In other words, what he's saying is, God will provide the needs of your life as you trust him. And so Peter says to us, cast all your anxiety on him. Because he cares for you. And next he says, be alert and of sober mind. When our faith is under fire and we're tempted to compromise or pressured to cave in, we need to be alert to the dangers to our faith that are coming from outside us. Be alert. And we need to be sober minded because the dangers inside us our own hearts and minds. In this context, however, there's a specific reason for being alert and sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And Peter knew this only too well. Last week I mentioned Peter's denial of Jesus. Listen to how Jesus warned him before that happened, Simon, Simon, that's Peter's other name, by the way. 
Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And then moments later in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said again, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Oh, how the memory of that warning must have stung and seared his conscience when the night was over. And Peter knew the depth of his failure. And if Peter failed, one of Jesus' closest friends hung around with him for three years, eyewitness to these extraordinary miracles and everything that happened. If Peter failed at that moment of great pressure, who are we to think that we can stand strong without being alert and sober-minded and depending on God in earnest, humble prayer? The word Satan, it's the name, and, and, and devil, both mean accuser. He's relentless, kind of like a seagull going for the last chip in the packet. He accuses God's people and opposes the advance of the gospel any way he can. He serves up a regular diet of deceit and his specialty is lies. He wants to damage and destroy your faith. Roaring lion. It's a pretty alarming and, and yet kind of appropriate image, isn't it? By ourselves, we cannot defeat him. But we need not fear. Because, as John writes, uh, the reason Jesus came was to destroy the devil's work. Friends, we need to know God's truth. So that when the devil comes along... And, you know, says things like, did God really say? Remember that one. Or when he tries to convince you that you are somehow an exception to the rule when he suggests that some, you know, damaging consequences of sin will not happen to you or something like that. They don't apply to your situation or uh, you can be alert to those lies. You can see the danger. And like our Lord Jesus you can fight against him with the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. That's why Peter continues, resist him, standing firm in faith. When the devil promotes some sinful option in your ear, this will feel good. This will nurture you. This will satisfy that longing of your soul. Friends, don't you believe it. Stand firm on God's truth. Talk to God about it. Tell him what's going on. Tell him how you're feeling and trust him. Pass him that ball. And it's worth remembering what, what James says about this issue. He said, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And then Peter reminds us that we're not alone you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Just knowing that others have walked the path that you're struggling to walk, knowing that others are fighting the same battle, it helps us persevere. It strengthens us. A burden shared is often a burden halved. Peter says a similar thing in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. 
Great verse. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to people. And God is faithful. And, and here's two promises straight from God. Listen to this. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. What a great promise to stand on. And there's a second one. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out. How many times when we've been caught in temptation have we realised there's a way out? We don't always take it, do we? But he provides it and we thank him for it. So there's four things that we're called to do. Humble ourselves, cast all our anxiety on him, be alert and of sober mind and resist the devil. Now, let's look at what God will do. Verse 10. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you've suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. Sounds great, but we really need to break this verse down so that we can see just how wonderful it is. Peter begins by drawing our attention to the character of God himself. We often talk about the grace of God, don't we? Peter flips it around and says, the God of all grace. You see, grace is who he is, not just something that he sort of does from time to time. So with that in mind, the God of all grace in mind, Peter then explains what God is doing for us. And we need to understand the time frame here. Eternal glory... That's the future of all who are called in Christ. Then he says, after you've suffered a little while. And the question for us is, what's the time frame and who's he talking about? I mean, like, is this comes sort of a, a specific kind of prophetic word that Peter has for the original readers alone? And we're kind of just like watching on from the sidelines. Or is this actually something that's for everyone? What's going on in this little verse? Straight after that bit, the word restore, we don't kind of get the full picture of that word. It literally means to be completely made whole, which is an indication of what awaits us in heaven. That means that suffering for a little while is referring to life now for all believers, including us. So remember who we are. Who remembers 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9? We are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Friends, we are citizens of heaven for eternity. But we're not there. We're here right now. We're still living in a hurting, confused, pandemic-gripped, sin-stained world. God doesn't always protect us from suffering. But he is always present with us through our suffering to help us endure and stand firm. Firm and steadfast and, and stronger. That's what God's doing in us. Firm and steadfast is sort of a way of saying he's establishing our faith like an immovable fortress for the soul. 
And he won't stop until his work is complete, until we're fully restored with him in, in heaven itself. It's such an encouraging p- picture. See, heaven is guaranteed because of Jesus' death for us on the cross. And until we get there, God is actively at work in us, in our hearts, in our heads, through all the challenges of life to grow our faith until we are fully restored and we don't need faith because we, we see with our own eyes. It's so good, isn't it? God walks with us the whole way. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul says right near the beginning of Philippians. He who began a good work in you will do what? He will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. Friends, God is with us every step of the way until we're with him personally. What a wonderful, wonderful hope we have. So it's no surprise that kind of Peter erupts in praise in verse 11. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen, he says. Now, there's several doxologies like this throughout the New Testament. And there's a variety of words kind of thrown in glory and power and honour and all sorts of things. Uh, But here, I think Peter uses the word power because in the face of opposition and persecution from other people, In the face of satanic attack, it's comforting to know you're on the winning team. You're with the guy who has the big guns. God has infinite power. God invented power. In fact, he determines who has it and how much they have. And you know, even the devilish roaring lion that Peter describes is powerless against him. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 8 says this, And when the lawless one is revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow, how? With the breath of his mouth. (laughs) Such a great picture. And destroy by the splendor of his coming. The devil is defeated just by Jesus showing up. How good is that? What a great picture. And I hope some of the children, if you're at home, uh, I, I hope that you finish that worksheet and that you post it on the Facebook page because that's exactly what's pictured on the children's worksheet. To God be the power forever and ever. And all the people said, Amen. we agree, we agree. And that's the end of the formal part of the letter. And then what follows is a typical ending for ancient letters, although Peter does give it a distinctly Christian flavour. Very few people knew how to write uh, back in those days, so it was common to use a scribe. Um, Peter says, with the help of Silas, I've written to you briefly. But look at the little bit he throws in the middle. Whom I regard as a faithful brother. It's fantastic. What a lovely way of publicly thanking and affirming someone who is a behind-the-scenes servant. Isn't that gold? You know, I reckon we should all set ourselves a goal for this week to thank two or three people who bless our church family by serving behind the scenes. There's, There's lots of them. I know many of you sitting here, probably many of you watching at home as well. Uh, that'd be a good thing to do. 
Next, he restates why he's written this whole letter, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. And then, since Peter is an elder of a church, he includes a greeting from the whole church. Um, let me explain. There's a bit of like ancient code language going on here. She, that's the church, who is in Babylon, that's kind of code for the ruling city or province of the, the time. So it's probably, Peter's probably writing from Rome. Uh, chosen together with you. I love that because he's so good at affirming both the readers and those who are with him uh, and reminding them that they're all part of God's family together. Uh, sends, her sends you her greetings and so does my son Mark. Now, Mark, we knew that Peter was married. Did he have a son called Mark? The Bible never mentions it. Uh, most likely, most likely, this is actually the Mark who wrote the Gospel of Mark and who travelled with and spent most of his time as a ministry apprentice under Peter. So uh, most people think that's who he's referring to by the name Mark. And then one of the outstanding characteristics of the early church is their brotherly love. They were like family, genuinely. They treated each other that way. Uh, Middle Eastern families, uh, they do verse 14, don't they? Greet one another with a kiss of love, usually on both cheeks, just you know, so you get the message, right? It's beautiful. Peter encourages the church to do this as a visible expression of a spiritual reality. So you just don't go down the aisles of uh, Woolies you know, kissing people on both cheeks, do you? Now this, this is an obvious expression of love for those close to you, for family. Peter says, we are family. Express your love like family. Question for you, though. I know what you're thinking. <laughs> what are we going to do when we leave here today? Uh, what do we do in our culture and in our current climate of social distancing? We behave toward one another in a way that expresses the immense value of the person because we're going to be with them, not just for this life, but in fact, we're going to be with each other for eternity. How awesome is that? Just to be clear, just to be really clear, I'm not saying uh, that we need to obey the specific action of kissing here. I'm saying we need to obey the principle. No kisses at the door, right? Um, in fact, as of last night, Gladys Berejiklian's made it clear that we need to stay seated and distanced from each other. And friends, being COVID safe, that is an act of love for one another. And it's hard. As I mentioned, John's watching the live stream today. I hope you, I hope you like the new microphone I got, John. Um, I hope you can hear my voice a bit clearer this week. Uh, John would love to be here. The whole family would love to be here. But he had a bit of a sniffly nose, got tested. Um, I actually haven't heard the result. Should have probably come in about 3 a.m. this morning. Uh, but he's obeying authorities, setting a good example for all of us. We show our love for others uh, in whatever kind of practical ways, just not physically at the moment. But you know what? I reckon this is good for us because it forces us to think creatively, to actually be really thoughtful in how we communicate our value for one another. 
Perhaps next week we could share some of the great ideas we've come up with this week. Peter finishes with a blessing. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. How can we enjoy peace like that? Putting into practice all that we have learned in this short but wonderfully helpful letter. May God give us the strength to do so. Amen.